Let's pray. Father, we are people called out of slavery to many things. We are people who need you um, and we need to know you and you've made a way for that through the man Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for that, Father, and we come here to thank you this morning, and God, we pray that you would just bless um, the outpour of your word on your people, God, because without you, it will return void. It'll be empty words falling on deaf ears. So God, we pray that you would work miracles this morning through your text in the hearts of your church. This we ask in Jesus' name and for the sake of his glory. Amen. You may have a seat. When I was young, I... All right, let's pray. (laughs) When I was younger, I I really appreciated really short stories, you know, really fast-paced stories. If a series took too long, I didn't want to watch it. I wanted it to be resolved quick. I wanted it to have really fast-moving plot points. Like, that was exhilarating for me. And I, I could not stand shows that just went on forever and ever and ever and had a whole bunch of side episodes where the main plot didn't really develop. But as I've become older, not old, but older, as I've become older... I have come to appreciate um, longer shows with all of those side stories and character development. And, and one of the things that helped me appreciate that is to realize what those side stories were, were doing in the story. So they kind of acted as a step away from the main story to develop the characters, you know, to show us who we were working with here. And that, that's actually very important because as you develop your characters, the rest of the story, the rest of their decisions, uh, things like that, it, it all clicks together and it all makes way more sense. So now I, now I enjoy those side episodes and those slower parts. And our episode that we're looking at today uh, in Abram's life in Genesis 12 uh, is sort of one of those side stories. We step away from the main plot. There is no really fast advancement here. You'll, you'll remember last time there was major advancement in the turning of the tide in God's story. Abram was promised uh, that he would become a great nation from his seed, that God would bless him in this land. So the story's been pretty fast-paced from Genesis 1-1 until now. And now we pause for a bit, and in this side story, we're going to learn a little bit about Abraham, and, and we're going to learn very much about our God. So, this episode, it's contained between 12.10 and 13.1. Sorry about that, Jason, but between 12.10 and 13.1. So, in 12.10, Abraham goes down into Egypt. Uh, The land of Canaan was more hilly, and Egypt was sort of lower, so he goes down into Egypt. And in 13.1, he comes up out of Egypt. And so, this kind of forms the bookends. Remember the word, the inclusio, the bookends of our text that, that start it and then indicate that this section ends. So, let's get right into it, starting in verse 10, Abram's departure into Egypt. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So, just in verse 9, Abram was in the land traveling towards the Negev, which is the south country of Canaan, so he was still staying relatively within the promised land. 
So he's been touring this land. You know, he's, he's breathing in the air. He's soaking up all of God's promises for him. He's probably still looking around at each mountain and hill in wonder, like, God says this is mine. But also knowing Abraham, that he's been um, a home dweller up until now, kind of a late bloomer, he's probably looking for somewhere to settle in the land of Canaan, to have something a little more consistent, somewhere to set up shop. So, so does he settle down in the, in the land, in the south country, in the Negev? Well, no, verse 10 says not even close. You know, he keeps strolling right through, right through the Southlands, southwest, straight into Egypt. Pretty anticlimactic. Hey, Abram, our, our main man, he finally reaches the promised land. He sets up altars to worship God. He almost immediately after that just hightails straight out of the promised land into Egypt. And why does he go? Well, verse 10 told us, because there is a famine in the land. Now, there's a lot of things that can cause a famine. You can, have, you can have drought, you can have a locust plague, even an enemy siege that would stop the harvesting of food and things like that. A lot of things can cause a famine, but, but we know that God is sovereign over all of these things and over all climate. So understanding that God ultimately sent this famine, we have to ask ourselves, why would God send a famine into the promised land right where he just promised to bless Abram. You know, we'd, expect it, we'd be expecting after God's promise for Abram to see, you know, flourishing and, and anything but a famine. And now he's in the promised land and he sees a famine. So was, was God testing Abram to see if he'd have faith and stay in the promised land? We don't know. Was God providentially pushing Abram to Egypt on purpose for some reason? We don't know. The text, the text doesn't say But it's worth asking, and a lot of commentators have asked, and a lot of them disagree, was it wrong for Abram to go to Egypt? Was it wrong for Abram to go out of Canaan into Egypt? On one hand, it just makes plain sense to go to Egypt. If there's a famine where you are, and Egypt has the Nile River, and it's probably more prosperous than where you are right now, well... Yeah, of course. It's just common sense. Go to Egypt. I mean, remember, Abram's a nomad. He's traveling around. He doesn't have any uh, options for long-term food storage. So one hand, it makes sense to go to Egypt. So this could be an act of obedience on Abram's part. This could be Abram, with God's promises in mind, thinking, okay, God promised that through my seed, there'd be many nations and many people, and I don't have kids yet, so I have to keep me and Sarai alive. So we're going to go to Egypt. It could be an act of obedience on the other hand, this could be an act of faithlessness, faithlessness. So the word translated sojourn in the text here, he went to sojourn in Egypt. It actually implies more of like a settling down, making him more of like an immigrant who would stay in Egypt for a long time instead of someone who would just go there for a little while. So it, it seems like it could be that Abram's planning a long-term trip in Egypt to stay there. And that would make him a moving pilgrim on God's agenda that he could be planning to settle there and forget about God's plan altogether. So after all, like Abram being a late bloomer, he probably was attracted to stability, um, and he, he's probably, again, looking for somewhere to settle down where he doesn't need to bank as much faith in God's promises, where nothing's risky, where nothing's dangerous. There were other times where the patriarchs went to Egypt, even, even when they went to Egypt because of famine. You know, think of the story of um, Jacob. But the difference there is Jacob heard directly from the voice of God to go to Egypt, so he went. 
Abram is used, at this point, he's used to directly communing with God, and God hasn't told Abram anything about Egypt, as, as far as the text says. So it is possible that it's wrong for Abram to go to Egypt. Now, what I'm not saying here is that there's never a time, unless you hear God's audible voice, to just do the wise, right-in-front-of-you thing and provide for your family. It's not what I'm saying. But Abram was a unique man, and he had a, a really unique calling and a unique purpose. So personally, I lean in the direction that Abram should not have gone to Egypt. You know, after reading lots of stuff and thinking about it, I don't think he should have gone to Egypt. I think he should have stayed with faith in the land that God called him to. You know, I think we're going to see that it's fitting for his character that this was an act of disobedience to go into Egypt. But ultimately, the text doesn't make it clear to us. So whatever side you end up on, that's okay where we're really going to start to see Abram's character to start developing anyway is in verse 11 when he makes a plan on his way to Egypt. So Abram's plan. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife. So now Sarai's character is added to the plot. She's not going to say anything in this in this text. She really doesn't say much. Um, for better or for worse, she's just going to go along with everything Abram says here. And she's going to act more as a submissive, passive character. But think for a second. Abram's about to talk. Now Abram said to Sarai, his wife, Have we heard Abram t- uh, say anything yet? Have we heard Abram speak yet? No, we haven't heard Abram say anything yet, right? And so remember, the first time a character speaks in the scriptures, that's usually pretty telling. It's usually indicative of the kind of character, the kind of person, the kind of man that God is going to use for the task. So, Abram and Sarai are about to enter Egypt because of a famine, and on the way, Abram realizes something and reacts with a plan. So, keep going in verse 11. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Man, if you ever need to ask your wife a favor, follow Abram, start there. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And mean it, too. Hey, that's true, okay. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Verse 12. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So not only does Abram think his wife is beautiful, and he should, he knows that in reality she is so beautiful that she's to kill for. She's not just to die for, she's to kill for. And so he's expecting them to take notice, and they're not just going to take notice. He's afraid that they are going to have his neck and kill him so that they can take his wife as their own. Either Sarai is wildly attractive to die for, to kill for, or the Egyptians have a reputation for extra wickedness, and probably both. I think the text is pointing to both. Verse 13, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. What Abram just said, and what he's telling Sarah to say, is true. It's interesting. Sarai is actually Abram's half-sister. Genesis 20:12 tells us that they have the same father. Not the same mother, but the same father. So while this is true in a sense, this isn't the whole truth. They are going to have to use some deception and hide some things to pull off Abram's plan here when they enter Egypt. So if they find out Abram is her husband, they'll kill him, have her for themselves. At least Abram thinks so. So he wants to make it appear like they're just siblings. So they have no reason to kill Abram when they enter the promised land and they can just take her brother from him or take, her sis- take his sister from him. Verse 14. 
So he's asking her to lie. He's asking her to lie. So we shouldn't just assume, but we should ask, is Abram actually just throwing Sarai under the bus here? Just throwing out her you know, moral purity, throwing her safety right under the bus to save his own neck in Egypt. It's what it looks like. He's, he's thinking, if they know I'm her husband, they'll kill me to be with her, so pretend to be your brother. So is this a sinful lie, or is this, is this just a strategic representation of, like, half-truths? Is this, a, is this a lie of sin, or is this just kind of tinkering with the truth a little bit or wording the truth right, which we do so often, just to make something seem a certain way. One thing you could compare this to in your head is this like the lie of Rahab. Remember, Rahab lied to hide the spies in her home so that they wouldn't be found and killed. It's not like the lie of Rahab. No, of of course it's a sin. This is pretty obvious that this is a sinful lie. I mean, think of Rahab's lie. Her lie was at her expense. She put herself in the crossfire for the preservation of others. But look at Abram's lie. Abram puts his wife in the line of fire to save his own neck. Doesn't he sound kind of like his father Adam, throwing his wife in front of him for his own sake? There should be something in Abram right now that, that, that would sooner die than let Sarai be, be harmed in any way or defiled especially. You know, it, it should be him instead of her. There should be some spark in him that before he sees anything happen to her, jumps in front of her and says, no, me. Where is that spark in Abram? It's missing here. And so husbands, I think that we've all had a time uh, that we can reflect on where that spark was just missing in us too where we just let our wife go through something alone. We didn't jump in front of her. We didn't take the burden from her. We're sons of Adam as well, just like Abram. Besides that, consider this, though. Abram should have that spark to protect Sarai, to do something, but Abram shouldn't need that spark right now. He should have it, but he shouldn't need it right now. What should Abram be be banking on instead of his willpower to protect his wife? Didn't God just promise Abram that he's going to make a nation of him, that through his seed, he's going to have all of the nations blessed through offspring as numerous as the stars. God just promised that to Abram. So Abram should consider himself immortal until God has fulfilled this promise. Abram should be thinking to himself, I don't have to plot or scheme or devise anything. If we go into Egypt and they want to kill me to have my wife, the Lord will stop them because he has said to me, it is spoken, I will bless those who bless you and curse those those who curse you. Abram shouldn't have to plot anything, so he's acting out of faith here. He's acting out of faithlessness, sorry, here. So then we have the first words of our great patriarch, Abram. On his way out of the promised land, because of fear for his life, he plots the lie of a coward and throws his wife under the bus into jeopardy. Now they're going to enter Egypt. Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So now they've entered Egypt. And up until now, we've had the characters of Abram and Sarai on their way to Egypt. And now we add the Egyptians. Not very specific, just the Egyptians. So it seems like all of Egypt who sees Sarai, she's raising some eyebrows here, just like Abram expected. They're pretty impressed by Sarai. 
And she's not just beautiful this time. In the text, it says she's very beautiful, they realized. There's an old tale from Jewish oral tradition where when Sarai and Abram entered Egypt, Sarai was kind of in like a backpack of Abram's. He was carrying her in some box on his back. And when they entered, the Egyptian guards inquired and inquired of Abraham, what's in the backpack? What's in the backpack? And eventually he opened it up and Sarai's beauty, according to this tradition, lit the whole, the whole uh, country of Egypt. It lit the whole nation of Egypt. That's not scriptural and that's, that's almost certainly not true. I think we can say with pretty certain certain confidence that that didn't happen, but that tradition just shows us how highly Sarai's beauty was regarded uh, by, by the tradition and by the people in this time. And Sarai's 65 here. It seems that this culture and this tradition is on to something that our culture is kind of missing. You know, our culture, when it thinks of a, a woman beauty to kill for, it just pushes the limits of youth as far back as, as permissible at the time. You know, extremely young when a woman's just past the verge of womanhood. But these people understand that a woman grows into her beauty as she, as she grows and things like that. And so we also have to consider this. Ab- Abram's going to live till 175, and Sarai's going to live until 127. So yeah, she's 65 years old, but all things relative compared to our modern uh, life expectancy, Sarai's about 35 or 40 years old here. The point is, Sarai is off the charts beautiful. Sarai is wildly beautiful, gorgeous. She's stunning to the people who see her. So Egypt notices her in a general sense, verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, so now more specifically than all the Egyptians, the royal officials of Pharaoh, they're staring at Sarai. By now, Sarai's probably either mega proud or mega uncomfortable. I I think she'd probably be mega uncomfortable. But continue in verse 15. So... The princes of Pharaoh see her, verse 15, part 2, they praised her to Pharaoh, and then the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Doesn't this sort of sound like Genesis 3, 6? Genesis 3, we have a half lie from Satan. Eve sees something pleasing to the eye, and she takes it for herself, which isn't hers. Here in Genesis 12, Abram tells a half lie about something. And the Egyptians see something pleasing to the eye that isn't theirs. They take Sarai for themselves into Pharaoh's house. Nothing has changed after the flood, even still. But note here, the the, the characters added in Egypt, they keep getting more more specific, and they keep getting more and more important. So one, all of Egypt saw Sarai and marveled, pretty general. A little more specific, too, the Egyptian princes took note of her beauty. And three, now the Pharaoh of Egypt himself hears of her beauty, and his men bring her to him. Sarai's beauty attracts the common man. Sarai's beauty attracts princes. Sarai's beauty distracts the king of Egypt himself. And so from here on out, Abram, Sarai, and Pharaoh, they're going to be our our big players here, our main characters. It's worth noting for a moment that this Pharaoh is not the Pharaoh of the Exodus story with Moses and and the Israelites. Pharaoh is not a personal name. Pharaoh is just a title, you know, kind of like the crown or the king. So this is the Pharaoh of Egypt at the time. But here's what's important. The ruler of all Egypt basically just had Abraham's wife, Abram's wife, sorry, taken from him, abducted from him. And his henchmen are running the street and they took Sarai into his house And Abram did not stop them. Abram just let his wife 
the, the womb that was going to bring forth these promises, one key component in God's promises coming to, coming to light, he just let her get taken away into Pharaoh's house. On one hand, this is just his plan working out. He told her, pretend that we're just siblings so that they don't kill me because of you. But on the other hand, I don't think that Abram expected it to go this far. I think maybe he expected some people to take notice of Sarah and even for maybe just some random Egyptian to want to settle down and marry her. But I don't think that he expected someone as prominent as the Pharaoh of Egypt to take Sarai into his house. And so as the situation's getting more and more out of hand, shouldn't Abram's conscience be ringing? You know, shouldn't, shouldn't every step further this goes just be an opportunity for him to say, enough, stop it. You know, I, I come out, I lied, I'm sorry. Maybe he's just drowning it out in his conscience. Many of us know what it feels like to be like a deer caught in headlights, where we're in a sin and we've been found out, and, and even though it's not true, it's never true that it's too late to come out of a sin, in that moment, we are dead convinced that it is too late to bail. We're locked in, here we go, and like I said, that's never the case, but how easy is it, like Abram here, to be convinced that it's just too late to turn away from your sin? So Abram follows through, and he lets that happen. So there's Sarai, vulnerable at the house of Pharaoh. And what's going on with Abram while this unfolds? Verse 16. And for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. This is what Abram receives in return for his wife, in return for Sarai. God promises Abram a great nation, descendants like the stars, a great name. And then Abram goes to Egypt and does things his way, and he gets some servants and some animals. We have to understand that these are still a blessing from the Lord. This is still the blessings he receives from Pharaoh. This is still a small fulfillment of God's blessing um, to Abram. God promised that blessing would follow him supernaturally, but how much smaller is this blessing than the blessing that Abram was expecting, than the blessing that Abram should receive from the Lord? Even so, here we are, Abram's making out like a gangbuster. Abram's rolling in the deep, doing well for himself, and his wife is alone at Pharaoh's house. And he's probably certainly planning to defile her. And by this, if it were even possible, Abram has just put the promises of God at jeopardy. It's hanging by a thread here. He's outside of the promised land. He has no wife, no children. Seems like no hope. Verse 17, but the Lord... So now God's stepping into the picture. You know, when I read this, I can't help but think of Ephesians 2. You know, we, we totally blew it. I mean, we can all think of ways that if it weren't for the Lord, we've ruined our life. And Ephesians 2, but God. And now here, Abram just absolutely blows it. Verse 17, but the Lord. And what's the Lord do? But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Scholars believe that the word translated here for plagues points to a sexual infection of some kind, some sort of sexual plague or disease that came upon Pharaoh. This does not mean that Sarai gave this to Pharaoh. This does not mean that Pharaoh contracted this from Sarai. The text doesn't even say that they ever slept together. What the text does say is that God 
God himself supernaturally struck, struck Pharaoh with this disease. You know, the text says the Lord struck Pharaoh. So this was preventative. Seems to me that this was preventative. The Lord probably struck Pharaoh with this sexual disease to prevent him from being able to go to bed with Sarai. Verse 18 shows us that he found out that Sarai was Abram's wife. Well, how did he know that that meant Sarai was married? I mean, did Sarai tell him? Did this disease, did he hear a voice from the Lord? I mean, I think that Pharaoh was probably smart enough to piece two and two together that this was supernatural protection of Abram and his wife, who turns out to be his wife and not his sister. And not just Pharaoh received this judgment. It says Pharaoh and his whole house received a plague from the Lord. Nobody is going to touch Sarai. No one can touch Sarai. Abram abandoned Sarai. God did not abandon Sarai. He's preserving the purity of Sarai. He's preserving the purity of her womb so that he can continue his plan, so that he can keep his promise to Abram. Let God be true and every man a liar. God will fulfill his promise. Even after all of Abram's mistake. You almost have to feel for Pharaoh here, though. Abram lied to him. Sarai lied to him. They said that they were just siblings, and all Pharaoh did was take a wife for himself in the normal way that people usually took wives for themselves, especially prominent people in that day. Pharaoh wasn't doing anything that would raise any eyebrows, at least in his culture. He was just going with the flow, and now he's struck with plagues. So let's see Pharaoh's response, verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? You think Abram has anything to say at this point? He did lie. Pharaoh's right. Would you have anything to say at this point? Again, lots of times when we're caught in sin, a lot of us know that feeling where all we can do is be silent, stare blank past the person's shoulder, Maybe our jaw locks up and our stomach just turns inside of us. So here's Abram standing there under this intense questioning, and he's got nothing. There's nothing he can say. He did lie. He did bring this plague upon Pharaoh. And so Abram's probably fearing for his life at this point. I'd be. And yet, surprisingly, Pharaoh does not kill Abram. The Pharaoh doesn't kill Abram here. Continue in verse 19. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Literally in the language, here, wife, take, go. Pharaoh's pretty furious, and he doesn't kill Abram. Instead, verse 20, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him that they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This word for Pharaoh's men here, it's a, it's, it's a different group of guys than the princes that Pharaoh had scoping Sarai out. These seems like these are armed guards from, from what I've studied. These are uh, not princes, but these are, these are officials. These are military officials. And Pharaoh is having them take Abram, take Sarai, and escort them out of Egypt. He's doing two things here. One, he's making sure that he never sees Abram or Sarai again. Get out of Egypt. Don't come back. We'll see you out. Two, he's making sure that Abram makes it safe out of his house and out of Egypt. Why, why do that? Why not kill him? I, I don't think it'd be beyond the Pharaoh's character to just kill Abram at this point. 
Why is the Pharaoh so bent on making sure that Abram and his wife get out of Egypt safe? What has the Pharaoh realized here? The Pharaoh has realized that Abram and Sarai are under supernatural protection from God. I've taken from this man, I've, I've almost touched his wife, I've almost married his wife, but God struck me with a plague. God is protecting these people. And so, understanding that, Pharaoh makes sure that they get out of Egypt safely with armed guards. And you see what Abram's begun to do here? Abram, a pagan king of Egypt, which does not get painted well in the rest of the story, Abram, the, the, the Pharaoh, or sorry, the Pharaoh of Egypt, my bad, he is trusting the promises of God more than Abram is trusting the promises of God. Pharaoh, Pharaoh didn't hear the exact words from God's mouth, you know, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, but he's experienced it. He's tried to come against Abram and his wife, and he's been cursed. So Pharaoh is understanding that God is protecting Abram, and Pharaoh knows that that's true, and Pharaoh's acting like that's true, and all of Abram's scheming up until now has zero faith in that. A pagan king has more faith in the promises of God than Abram has in the promises of God. So he sends them away safe. Verse 13, 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Loads of trouble, a journey to Egypt, accomplished nothing, back to square one in the Negev. That's our text. Into Egypt, some trouble straight back out into Canaan. And think of the irony of this text. Abram was just told that he was supposed to be a blessing to all of the nations on earth. And the first thing that he goes and does is becomes a curse to the nations. Essentially, he's like, that word's not used, but he's acted like a curse to Egypt. He's brought affliction instead of a, a blessing. And so while he's in Egypt, he doesn't achieve anything. He doesn't set up any altars. He doesn't even hear from the voice of God while he's there. He has to stoop to, to the level of being rebuked by a pagan king. But God does not fail to protect, provide for, and even immensely bless Abram through all his failures. 13.2, the start of 13, uh, verse 2, it implies that Abram was way better off financially coming out of Egypt than he was going into Egypt. So Abram leaves Egypt protected and immensely blessed. So no, the, the plot did not move a whole bunch here. But we've developed our characters a bit. You know, we've learned, it seems like Abram's actually a pretty, pretty frail in faith man. He's a weak man, just like you and I. But we've learned that even so, our God is so faithful. Our God is immensely faithful. But again, we have Abram frail and weak in faith, just like you and I. A pilgrim. First Peter 2 calls us strangers and aliens on this earth, like Abram. And you and I are just frail, weak faith men who belong to a faithful God. Pilgrims just like Abram. So, you and I pilgrims, what are some truths from this text that we can put to work on our journey, on our pilgrimage through this earth? Some tips here. 
Well, the first thing I want to point out, talk about, is pilgrim obedience. The first thing we can learn here is that the pilgrim, when wandering through this earth, has to be convinced that the promises of God are true and that God will fulfill his word. And so in doing so, we have to operate by the obedience of faith. What is the obedience of faith? Well, let's start with Abraham's disobedience from faithlessness. Abram forgot about God's promises. Abram decided to do things his way, and even with just like a tiny white lie, Abram departed from God's promises, from God's will. And look at all of the things that happened because of one small lie. Look at where he ended up. God had grace on Abram, but there were still consequences. He fell out of fellowship with God. He was horribly unproductive for the will of God. There were consequences here. Small sins and doing things our way out of a lack of trust in God's promises always gets us into deep water. It's been said many times, and we'll hear it again, sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. So we have to operate by faith. We have to obey by faith. Well, how do we do that? Well, we have to have a mindset that even when all of the odds are stacked against us, I mean, Abraham, Abram probably did have a good point. It was dangerous for him to go to Egypt. The odds were stacked against him. But we have to have a mindset that even when the odds are stacked against us, God has not forgotten us. We have to obey, and we can obey, because God will keep his promises. We, we have to be convinced that, that God's will and the way that the Lord puts before us, even though it's difficult, is more and better than anything that we could scheme or ever devise or, or make a plot out of. As pilgrims on this earth, we will have several temptations time and time again to hatch a scheme, devise our own plan, employ little sins that no one would even recognize. But the road that a pilgrim has to take is trodden with faith and obedience, not by disobedience, not by doing things our ways, not by compromise. So maybe you're having trouble with lust, for example. God commands you to flee, but God promises that blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So, so obey, kill the sin of lust, but kill it by faith. Be a pilgrim with somewhere that you're going, something ahead of you that you can see and hold on to because it's glorious. You're not just obeying to obey, you're obeying because you're going somewhere and this is not where I'm going. Maybe you're having trouble with envy. God commands you to put that away. Put that away from yourselves, First Peter 2. But he also promises that even if you see something you're jealous of in this person's life, God has promised that what he works in your life is for your good. Romans 8.28. So put away the cursed sin of envy, but put it away by faith like a pilgrim who sees a path, he's going there, and nothing can distract him. He's going somewhere better by faith. So be obedient. I mean that. Make your right choices. That's not legalism for me to say that. Do the right thing and do not compromise even a little bit. Be a staunch in this generation. That's not a bad thing. We've made it a bad thing. Play by the book. Do the right thing. But do what is right by faith. Act like a pilgrim. You've got something promised to you people. So live like it. You know, something we can't quite grasp yet, but it's there and it's glorious and it's real and it makes all of our obedience worth it, even if it doesn't make any sense. Next, we need to just reflect on God's grace to the pilgrim, to Abram, to Israel, to you, to me. Abram's trip to Egypt was packed with 
disobedience. It was just a 10-verse story of nothing but disobedience, unproductivity, and then he leaves. And yes, like I said, there's consequences. But how does Abram leave Egypt? How does Abram exit Egypt? Well, remember, 13 verse 2 makes it sound like he left Egypt super rich, super blessed. He was overflowing with blessings that he acquired while he was in Egypt that he did not deserve. And so we see things like this, and maybe you see it in the life of your friend, or maybe you read it in, in, in characters in the Bible, and you just think, didn't they botch it? Like, didn't they just mess that up so much? Why are they being showered with blessing? That doesn't make any sense. No. That doesn't make any sense. Grace doesn't make any human sense. If we try and make grace make sense, we're we're trying to find a way why it makes sense that we'd get that, why it makes sense. We kind of deserve it, we'd like to think. But no, grace makes no human sense. As soon as we try and find a pattern to it, we're stepping away from grace. And this pattern that we've seen in, in Genesis 12 is the pattern that God will use for his people time and time again. This is foreshadowing something pretty explicitly, so, so think with me here. Where else do we see in the Bible where God's people end up in Egypt because of a famine? Where else do we see in the Bible where God's people in Egypt are freed from there because, because God cast a plague on the Pharaoh in his house? Where else do we see in the Bible God's people leaving Egypt with the, with the blessings that Egypt had to offer them, with the loot from Egypt? Where else do we see that in the Bible? Well, we see it in the story of the Exodus with Moses. God's people end up in, as slave in, slaves in Egypt because of a, a famine, and yet God strikes a plague on the house of Pharaoh and releases them. And why does God do all this? Why does God keep releasing people who don't deserve it? Why does this pattern happen a few times in Scripture? Is it because the people are so great? No. Exodus 8.1, so that my people may come out of Egypt and worship me. This is so people can worship God so that his purposes would be fulfilled through them so that the Messiah would come eventually, and so that God would get all of the glory through Jesus and through the cross of Christ. So God had grace on these people. God had grace on Abram. God had grace on Israel, released them from Egypt, repeated the pattern despite their worst failings because he promised things to them. And his promises and his will will be fulfilled. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 15, Psalm 115.3. You and I can't stop God's purposes. Let God be true, though every man was a liar. Romans 3.4. Think of, uh, I can't remember now, it's not in my notes. First or second Timothy, though. But if we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot go against what he has said. God's purposes will stand. God's grace is about his purposes, not about us. I mean, you have to wonder why God would write the story this way. Why build Abraham up in such a way? Why promise all of these things to Abram? And and it seems like bring the climax of the story to start doing something with his plan on earth just to immediately have Abram go into Egypt and fail and fail hard. I think this is to show that no matter how hard we fail, no matter how hard we botch it, and everyone in this room either has or will botch it and and fall on our face bad, but no matter how much God's people do that, God will keep his promises to his people. So know this. 
Are you afraid that you've ruined God's promises for your life? Like it's sort of too late and it, and it could have went a totally different way if you X, Y, and Z. You've ruined God's plan for your life. Now he has to make a plan B. That's not as good as plan A would have been. We'll know this. You need to stop thinking so highly of yourself if you think that. <laughs> you are not powerful enough to stop the promises and the will and the purposes of God. All of your failings and all of your mistakes, they are not good enough to come against our God's purposes, and he will establish them because he has promised things to us in Christ, and we will receive those things because of him and his glory and his purposes, not because of us. And so... Both of these events, Abram and then foreshadowing the Exodus, they're shadows of of the grace that ultimately are fulfilled among you and I today in Christ. So we've seen Abram's story in 1217. It had its but the Lord moment. Everything was hopeless but the Lord. So Abram's story has its but God moment. And so what about... What about our story after all of our failures? Well, let me read to you from our call to worship this morning, Ephesians 2, starting in uh, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were not pilgrims going somewhere. We were wanderers. We were strays. We were fall off, far off. We were following Satan. We were following our passions. We were just drug around and, and allured by anything that Egypt had to offer us. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Maybe some of us are thinking, yeah, but Abraham made it out of Egypt with riches. I want, where's my riches in the story? Well, verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So take heart. Even though you, and you have, and I have, even though we have done everything that we can to abandon the promises of God, to compromise the things that God has promised to us who are in Christ. Even though we've done everything we can to ruin it, if you are in Christ, he has made you alive and he has protected you and your position in the heavenlies and your promises will be fulfilled. He's protected you from the schemes of the enemy. He's protected you from yourself. You cannot escape your God. So do not think so highly of yourself that you can mess up God's plan for your life. It is not so, God forbid. And he will in the ages to come, forever, age upon age upon age. It will never end. He will keep showing us his goodness of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What does that look like? What do those riches look like? How is he going to show us that kindness? 
I don't know, and you don't know, but we are going to find out together forever and forever and forever. And if you are in Christ, you cannot mess that up. You cannot stop that. And you've got zero, a sum total of this to boast about because this is all God. The last thought that I want to leave us with is to ask ourselves, ask yourself, am I a pilgrim or am I a wanderer? Am I a pilgrim or am I a wanderer? What's the difference? How do I know if I'm a pilgrim? How do I know if I'm a wanderer? A pilgrim falls. A pilgrim does fall. A pilgrim strays. Even Abram ended up in Egypt for a season. So that happens sometimes. But ultimately, God brings the pilgrim out of Egypt. God won't let him stay there. God will not let the pilgrim stay in his sin because, like I said, the pilgrim has promises ahead of him and he's marching towards those. A pilgrim has a a vision. He knows where he's going. The pilgrim has a purpose and he is marching towards that. And if he gets off track, and he will, he will get back on track because he sees where he's going. He can taste it. But a wanderer, how do you know if you're a wanderer? A wanderer has no idea where they're going. You might be here today, you have no idea where you're going. You don't know what you're doing here. You don't know what you're doing in life. You don't have any precious promises ahead of you. You don't have anything that you're expecting from this or from God. You're not marching towards anything. You're wandering. You're being dragged around. A wanderer is never dragged out of their sin. A wanderer stays in Egypt. They've got no promises in their heart and they don't know what they're living for. If you're a wanderer, it's not far off from you to become a pilgrim. If you're a wanderer, you can become a pilgrim. You can join us on this walk. You can have a goal, and you can have a hope, and you can have precious promises and something to go towards in Christ through faith and repentance in what he has done at Calvary. So I plead with you wanderers, if you're a wanderer here, stop wandering. Stop wandering around, being dragged around by your own passions. Find something to march towards and find it in Christ. There's a purpose to all this. There's somewhere you can be going. Look at Jesus and go there. You don't have to know everything to become a pilgrim. You don't have to know everything to stop being a wanderer. You just have to pick a promise and start marching. All you have to do is pick a promise and start walking. Why don't you start with this one? John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, Jesus speaking, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if you're a pilgrim, or if you're just starting your pilgrimage today, or if you want to pray with us uh, after, find somebody and just ask them, hey, where's the map? How do I get on this journey? Let us remember that, that none of us can walk this road. None of us can make it to the promised land without our hope and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me, Remember, God's working, and he will work, and he is working in spite of you. It's not you. If you are a pilgrim, if you are headed towards the holy city, it is Christ in you. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for all of the riches that we receive in Jesus Christ. God, thank you that even though we've done everything we can, Father, to run away from you, to abandon you, to abandon your promises, to destroy your plan, you would not let our counsel stand, and you destroy our counsel with yours. We thank you for that, God. We thank you that you protect us from ourselves. We thank you that you glorify yourself through us and that you see fit to do that. And God, because of that, we make it out of our sin, we make it out of our shame, and we make it out with blessing upon blessing in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. All we can say, God, is thank you. God, help us on this journey. Help us be pilgrims who are going something, going somewhere, Lord. God, if anyone here is off the track, if anyone here is in Egypt, if anybody here has strayed away from you, God, would you bring them back? Would you put them back on the path and do it in a way where they can only say that it was you? All praise and glory and honor be to you, God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.